Well, she got here all right, the Virtue, with the crate aboard. Arrived on the 12th of January, two days before Mr. Lauderback himself. Next day, the crate was unloaded, stacked onto the quay with all the rest of the cargo, and I signed for it to be transferred into my warehouse where Mr. Lauderback would pick it up after he arrived. But that never happened. The crate was swiped. Never made it into the warehouse. Was the crate identified on the exterior as belonging to Mr. Lauderback? Oh, yes, said Balfour. You'd have seen the crates stacked along the quay. They'd be indistinguishable, you know, were it not for the bills of lading. The bill tells you who owns the goods and who's the shipper and what have you. What happened when you discovered the crate was missing? You can be sure I tore me hair out looking for it. I hadn't the faintest clue where it might have gone. Well, Godspeed was wrecked on the bar two weeks later, and when they cleared her cargo, what should turn up but the Lauderback crate? Seems it had been loaded on to Godspeed when she last weighed anchor from the Hokitika port. In other words, very early on the morning of the 15th of January. That's right. What happened when the Lauderback trunk was finally recovered? I did some sniffing around, said Balfour. Asked some questions of the crew, and they told me how the mistake had come about. Well, here's what happened. Someone had seen the bill of lading, Mr. Lauderback, bearer, and remembered that their skipper, that's Carver, had been on the lookout for a crate so identified the previous year. They saw this crate on the wharf the night of the 14th, and they thought, here's a chance to earn a bit of favour with the master. So they opened it up, just to be curious. Inside there's a trunk and a pair of carpet bags and not much else. Doesn't look terribly valuable, but they figure you never know. They go off to find Captain Carver, but he's nowhere to be found. Not in his rooms at the hotel, not at the bars, nowhere. They decide to leave it till the morning, and off they go to bed. Then Carver himself comes flying down the quay in a terrible bother, turns them all out of their hammocks, and says, Godspeed weighs anchor at the first light of dawn, only a few hours hence. You won't say why. Anyway, the fellows make a decision. They pop the lid back on the crate, haul it aboard nice and quick, and when Godspeed weighs anchor just before first light, the crate's in the hold. Was Captain Carver notified of this addition to the cargo? Oh, yes, said Balfour, smiling. The fellows were pleased as punch. They thought there would be a reward in it, you see. So they wait until Godspeed is under sail before they call him down. Carver takes one look at the bill of sale and sees they've botched the job. Balfour shipping, he says. It was Danforth shipping. That was the one I lost. You've lifted the wrong bloody one, and now we've got stolen goods aboard. Might we infer from this, Moody said, that Captain Carver had lost a shipping crate identified as belonging to Alistair Lorderback with Danforth shipping as its shipper. That contained something of great value to him. Certainly looks that way, said Balfour. Thank you very much for your time, Mr. Balfour. My pleasure, Mr. Moody. Broom, who very plainly had no idea where Moody's line of questioning was going, waved his right to cross-examine the witness for the defence, 
and the justice, making a note of this, called the second witness. The Honourable Mr. Alistair Lauderback. Alistair Lauderback crossed the breadth of the courtroom in five strides. Mr. Lauderback, said Moody, when he had given his oath, you are the former owner of the bark Godspeed, is that correct? Yes, said Lauderback, that is correct. According to the deed of sale, you sold the ship on the 12th of May, 1865. I did. Is the man to whom you sold the ship in the courtroom today? He is, said Lauderback. Can you identify him, please, said Moody. Lauderback threw out his arm and levelled his index finger squarely in Carver's face. That man, he said, addressing Moody, that's the man right there. Can there be a mistake, said Moody. I observe that the deed of sale submitted to the court by Mr. Carver himself was signed by a C. Francis Wells. It's an out-and-out -out forgery, said Lauderback, still pointing at Carver. He told me his name was Crosby Wells, and he signed the deed as Crosby Wells, and I sold him the ship, believing all the while that I'd sold it to a man named Crosby Wells. It wasn't until eight, nine months later that I realized I'd been played for a fool. Moody dared not make eye contact with Carver, who had stiffened very slightly at Lauderback's falsehood. Moody saw in the corner of his eye that Mrs. Carver had reached out a white hand to restrain him. Her fingers had closed around his wrist. Can you describe what happened, he said. He played the jilted husband, said Lauderback. He knew I'd been out and about with Lydia. Everyone in this room knows it, too. I made my confession in the Times. And he saw a chance to turn a profit on it. He told me his name was Crosby Wells, and I'd been out and about with his wife. I never even dreamt he might be telling a barefaced lie. I thought, I've done this man wrong, and I've made a bad woman of his wife. The carvers had not moved. Still, without looking at them, Moody said, What did he want from you? He wanted the ship, said Lauderback. He wanted the ship, and he got the ship. But I was blackmailed. I sold it under duress. Not willingly. Can you explain the nature of the blackmail? I'd been keeping Lydia in high fashion over the course of our affair, Lauderback said, sending her old gowns over to Melbourne every month to get stitched up, and then they'd come back with the latest frills or flounces or what have you. There was a shipment that went back and forth across the Tasman in my name, and of course I used God's speed as my carrier. Well, he'd intercepted it. Carver had. He'd opened up the trunk, lifted out the guns, and packed a small fortune underneath them. The trunk was marked with my name, remember, and the arrangement with the dressmakers in Melbourne was mine. If that bonanza shipped offshore, I'd be sunk. On paper, I'd be foul of the law, on theft, evasion of duty, everything. Once I saw the trap he'd laid, I knew there was nothing to be done. I had to give him the ship. So we shook hands as men, and I apologized again, and then in keeping with his sham, he signed the contract Wells. Did you ever hear from Mr. Carver, alias Wells, after that encounter? Not a peep. Did you ever see the trunk again? Never. Incidentally, said Moody, 
What was the name of the shipping company you used to transport Mrs. Carver's gowns to and from the dressmaker's?